0: Uh, and if you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to First Peter? If you don't have a Bible with you and are using um, one of the red Bibles in the seat in front of you, uh, our passage in First Peter is on page five hundred and eighty-eight. And if you don't have a, a Bible at home, um, feel free to take one of these. This is our gift to you so that you can have the Word of God with you at all times. Um, well, good morning again. Like I said, my name is Jeremy. And this summer at Story Church, we've been looking at this letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to a group of Christians, uh, several churches in the ancient Roman Empire, who were uh, dealing with increased pressure and persecution. They were realizing that what they believed was different than what their neighbors believed, and they were in need of encouragement to remain faithful to the Lord and missionally engaged with their neighbors. And we've been studying this book all summer long. And uh, I said early on in our study that if we were going to take this book seriously as a church, that we would need to adopt a missionary mindset that we would have to think of ourselves as missionaries Uh, maybe you've gone on a missions trip before i've shared often about uh, the time my wife sarah and i were missionaries in india Um, that kind of missions trip we were doing two things we were um doing evangelism and sharing the gospel of jesus and at the same time we were also for a couple of days a week working in the slum communities and offering service and helping meet physical needs perhaps as a high schooler or middle schooler you went on a mission trip where you were helping build a house or paint something doing something that the the others couldn't do for themselves maybe you've gone on a trip to share the gospel with non Believers, Uh, maybe you've gone on a mercy kind of mission trip, caring for those who are hurting or vulnerable. Um, I know in our last church, we had a lot of medical students and doctors who had gone on many medical missions trips, offering medical care and services. There's a lot of types of missionary activity that we can go on. Um, But when Peter talks about adopting a missionary mindset, He's not talking about an event or a trip or or even a season of life. Peter is talking about an everyday in-and-out mindset to adopt the identity of a missionary wherever you are and whatever you do. I've titled this message, Everyday Church, because this is the beginning of a short section in Peter's letter where he breaks apart uh, three components of our everyday life. What does it mean to be a citizen in the world? What does it mean to be a worker in the workplace? What does it mean to be a member of a household, a family? And in each of those things, every day, day in and day out, Peter is calling us to missionary activity. And so we're going to start this brief series in the middle of Peter by looking at this header verse where he introduces this concept in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see that Peter calls us to do three things. He calls us to be resident aliens, he calls us to wage war, and he calls us to live beautiful lives. If you want to follow along, those three points are in your bulletin. Uh, you can write down notes as we read through and talk but let's read together the word of the lord from first peter chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 beloved i urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul keep your conduct among the gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask this morning, would you open our eyes of understanding to what it is that you have to show us? Spirit, point us to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So first, Peter calls us to live as resident aliens. He starts this subsection by calling his audience sojourners and exiles. That's how he identifies them. And this isn't the first time that we've seen Peter do this. He did this at the opening of his letter. He calls them sojourners and exiles. And in a sense, that's true physically, For his audience many commentators believe that the first audience of this letter the first recipients were actually a group of christians that used to live in the city of rome but that the emperor nero exiled them out of the city and kicked them out and now they're living as physical sojourners and exiles they're not in their home place they're temporarily living there because they've been exiled but it's also true spiritually. Peter knows that his letter is going to be read for, for people beyond his initial audience. And so he's calling all Christians, all disciples of Jesus, sojourners and exiles. We live where we live, but we do not belong here. We are strangers living in a strange land. We are aliens We're foreigners, but we're not just aliens and foreigners. We're aliens, foreigners, and we're residents. We are called to live side by side with the other inhabitants of this land. This has been the the identity of God's people throughout the whole story of redemption. Back in Genesis, remember Abraham and Sarah were called out of their homeland to journey to a land that God would show them. But while they lived in that land, they never owned it. It was promised to them, but they themselves never owned it. The Hittites and the Jebusites and a variety of other people owned that land, but they were sojourners and exiles. Abraham even calls himself that in Genesis 24 after Sarah dies And he seeks to buy a plot of land to bury her. He goes to the Hittites and says, I am a sojourner and an exile amongst you. But may I have land to bury my wife because I live here. I am one of you, but I don't belong here. Then Israel Uh, the descendants of Abraham, they'd go down into Egypt and for a time they were refugees and then for another time they were slaves, but both times they are called by God sojourners and exiles in the land of Egypt. They were there, they lived there, they worked there, they were enslaved there, but they didn't belong there. And then Israel was set free and redeemed out of Egypt, and God brought them to their promised land. But then generations later, their idolatry and sin led to their exile in Babylon. And while they lived in Babylon, Jeremiah, the prophet, writes them a letter calling them sojourners and exiles. You are to live there as residents even though you do not belong there. Peter is just picking up this identity that God's people have always received. We are sojourners and exiles. We are aliens, but called to be residents here. We are to be resident aliens. All Christians throughout time, because of what we believe, we will always be strangers. We will always live in a land amongst people that do not believe what we believe, who do not practice what we practice. Whether you are here in the US or on the other side of the world, we are always sojourners and exiles. It's not because of our ethics or our moral principles. You will find people on both sides of the socio-political aisle who like our morality and our ethics. People on the left like the Christian value of of working for the betterment of the poor, the vulnerable vulnerable and the marginalized, and people on the right like our stance for pro-life. It's not our morality and ethics that makes us stand out in strangers. It is our belief in the gospel. Nowhere else is our belief in the gospel accepted It is our belief that god the god of the universe is good and loves us and provides everything for us It is our belief that that god has given us everything that we need to live and love but it's our belief that that what's wrong with the world is not someone outside but what's in here no one else believes that that what's wrong with the world is not some other person but what's wrong with the world is sin in our own lives no one else believes that this god came down into the flesh into this world and and to identify with us to suffer with us to experience pain and loss with us no one else believes that this god who took on flesh ultimately experiences the weight and burden of sin taking on himself the penalty of our sin. No one else believes that salvation is not by works of the law, but by faith in this suffering, crucified king. No one else believes that by simply trusting in the work of Christ that we can receive salvation. No one else believes this. This is what sets us apart from the world. This is what makes us strangers in a strange land. Our belief in In the gospel. That is not how the world operates. No matter where you live, every Christian in this world is a stranger because we believe the gospel. And so Peter reminds us we are sojourners and exiles, we are resident aliens. But he's not just reminding us that that's true, he's calling us to live in that truth. He's not just saying you are resident aliens. He's saying I want you to live like resident aliens. I want you to live like residents side by side with your neighbors. I want you to live rooted in your community. I want you to live like you're putting down roots and enmeshing yourself in the lives of your neighbors. Live here. Seek the welfare of your community. And live like aliens. Be distinct. Be strange in the truth and belief of the gospel. Don't resemble your neighbors. Honor your true allegiance to the kingdom of God. Churches and individuals, we fall prey of falling into one side of this charge or the other. Some people think that in order to best reach our neighbor, we better emphasize being residents, living with our neighbors, looking like our neighbors, doing what our neighbor is doing, reaching them, becoming like them for their sake. This is a genuine desire, but we become so much like them that there's nothing that sets us apart from them. But other people fall on the other side of this hill where they look like aliens and distinct and separate themselves. Because we need to show the world what does it mean to be pure? We have to show the world the life that God is calling us into. He has called us out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. So we need to separate ourselves. We need to be aliens. We can fall on either side of this issue, this tension. Peter says you have to do both. Live as resident aliens. What areas of your life do you resemble your neighbors too much? In what way are you too much like the world? Maybe you've leaned heavy into living as residents of this world. Maybe conversely, we need to ask, in what way are we pulling ourselves out of this world too much? In what way are we separating ourselves so much that our neighbors don't even know who we are? Every one of us has a variety of ways in which we have to course correct our behavior. We have to live both as residents and aliens. In this everyday missionary church mindset, we are to live as sojourners and exiles. Our lives need to be rooted here, even though we hold fast to the truth that this is not our home. How do we do that? Peter goes on to share two illustrations of what that looks like to be resident aliens. First, he says, if you wanna be an alien in this world, you have to wage war. We have to wage war. There is a battle at stake, but it's not a cultural battle. There's not culture wars in this mission. And we're not at war with individuals. Remember, Paul will remind us that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the authorities in the spiritual realm. So, our neighbors that disagree with us, we're not at war with them. We're not fighting them. Those that we work with that that maybe uh, criticize our faith, they're not our enemy the people that we follow on social media that either directly criticize your faith or indirectly uh, criticize Christianity as a whole, they are not our enemy. But even if they were, like even if people hated you because of your faith, even the people that have rejected you because of your faith, even if Like in Canada, during the pandemic, the government said you can't meet together as a church. Even in the UK, where a street preacher was arrested because of something that he said about gospel ethics. Even in China, where they will storm into churches and arrest every one of us. Even if that were happening here, They are not our enemy. In fact, Jesus calls us to love those who persecute us, to do good to them. There is a battle, but it is with no one out there. Peter says there is a war, and the war is in our souls. It's within us, it's within our hearts. It's against our former selves. It's against our former sinful selves. There is a war. Our sinful desires are waging war against us. Paul in Romans 7 talks about this struggle. In Romans 7 he says, For I do not understand my own actions, I I do not do what I want to do, and the very thing that I hate, that is what I do. He goes on, he says, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil things that I do not want to do, I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells within me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I also see that in my members there is another law that is waging war against my members. It is against the law in my mind. It's making me captive to the law of sin. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There is a war that is waging in our hearts. Have you ever wrestled with yourself? about doing something that you know in your heart you should not be doing? Have you ever weighed the pros and cons of should I say this or not? Should I look at this or not? Should I be thinking that or not? Peter says there is a war going on in your heart between you and your former self between the new creation that God has brought into life through his son and your former life apart from God. Peter calls our enemy the passions of the flesh. The passions of the flesh. And he's not talking about a distinction between the things of this world and the things of heaven. He's not saying that there's the, the spiritual things that we should die, desire versus the material things we shouldn't desire. He's not a dualist in that regard. When he says the passions of the flesh, he is talking about desires that we have as a result of the corruption of sin. Sinful desires. Sinful desires. Sinful passions. In chapter 4, he's going to lay out a few of these passions of the flesh. He calls them sinful desires, uh, living in sensuality, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Other authors of the New Testament have their own list of passions of the flesh. But it's not just those things. Peter in chapter 1 actually uses the same phrase, passions of the flesh, in regard to how we used to live our lives. He's talking about how we used to live in ignorance. The things that we found ourselves wrapped up in in our former lives before we came to faith in Jesus. Those are fighting against your soul. They are strategizing against you continually, all the time, trying to gain a foothold in our heart, trying to bring up memories, trying to lure us back in. These passions, the passions of the flesh, they are waging war against us. So Peter says, abstain from them. Flee from them. Keep them far off. Do not fall prey to them. Do not engage with them. Do not even entertain the idea of them. Keep them away. Continually resist. Do not indulge yourself in them ever at any time. Peter is saying, do not only resist doing them, but resist even desiring them. Resist the passion of these things. Resist even dreaming about doing them. He's not just talking about sinful actions. He's talking about abstaining from even the sinful thoughts about those actions. One commentator says this, to entertain such desires, it may appear momentarily attractive. And in entirely harmless, since the desires themselves do not usually break forth into wrongful actions, but they are in reality enemies which inflict harm on the Christian's soul, making him or her spiritually weak and ineffective. To be unaware of this spiritual damage indicates a low level of spiritual perception do you see that connection that this commentator is drawing between the health and vitality and maturity and ministry of the christian and your ability to resist the passions of the flesh these desires eat away at us they weaken us and they make us un they make us ineffective. They make us ineffective, yeah, because they're sinful. That's obvious. But they make us ineffective because it's not just any other desire. It's, it's a unique kind of desire. Peter uses a word here for desire, passion, um, that's different than the usual Greek word for want. It's a word... Um, that, that really means an over desire, an, an abundant desire, a desire that reaches above the level of normal. It's, a, it's an inordinate level of desire, an unnatural level of desire. And when we have these inordinate levels of desire, that is when they cross the threshold and become destructive. Here's an example. God has created human beings as sexual beings. He created us in the garden with sexual desire. It's part of what it means to be human. It's not an an integral element of our identity, but it is part of the fabric of life that God has created us in. And he has given us these sexual desires to be expressed within the confines of God's revealed order within a covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. We see that. God shows that in Genesis, and Jesus reaffirms that. So sexual desire is a good passion that God has given us. But it becomes a passion of the flesh when we express that desire beyond what he has given to us, beyond his created Order, It becomes an inordinate desire. And whenever we give in to inordinate desires, we are saying, God, I know that you have shown me how to express this. I know that you have shown me what is good and right and true, but I do not agree and I am now putting myself in charge, and I will do what I think is right. I will do what I want to do. We put ourselves on the throne. We make ourselves and our desires the center of the world. It becomes inordinate, and when we do that, everyone else in the world becomes a means to serve you. When you put yourself and your desires at the center of the world, everyone else becomes a means to serve you. How can you love someone if you really think that they exist to serve you? We need to wage war against these sinful passions. Peter calls us to live as sojourners and exiles, to be in this world but not of the world. If we are not waging war against these sinful desires, then we will give in to them, we will entertain them, and we will join in the sinful and destructive practices of the world. We may lose the battle. And who's going to be the casualty of war? Possibly our souls, possibly the souls of our neighbors, to whom we are called to love and serve. Not only are we called to be aliens, to abstain from the sinful passions of our flesh, we're called to be residents. We're called to live beautiful lives. Peter calls us to l- conduct our lives amongst the Gentiles, amongst the non-believing neighbors around you. Conduct your lives in an honorable way, in a, in a beautiful way. Rather than pursuing self-interest, we should pursue the interests of others. This is a call to live our lives, our ordinary Sunday through Saturday, mundane, routine, sometimes even boring lives, in such a way that we show honor and beauty and love amongst our neighbors. We should respect them and value them and show them dignity and worth. We are to keep our conduct honorable before them. And that word honorable, it means beautiful. It means good looking. It means attractive. It's the same word he uses in the next line that we are to show our good works before our neighbors. Our good deeds. Peter is saying that our lives should be beautiful before our neighbors because they are watching us. We are not to live physically attractive lives, that's not what this is calling us to, but spiritually attractive lives. In light, uh, in line with the fruit of the Spirit, in line with God's revealed will for our lives, live in that way, in a beautiful way. In everyday situations, wherever you are, with whomever you are with, they are watching us. They're watching us how we treat our spouses. Do we use gentle words with them when we're in the presence of others and when we're not? Do our neighbors hear us honor them and respect them when we talk about them when they're not there? They're watching us as we parent our children. Do we speak tenderly to them and correct them with patience? Do we show our children dignity amidst our neighbors? They are watching us as we go to work. Do we gossip with our coworkers about one another? Or do we speak with grace? Do we work hard as if we're working for the Lord? Or are we hardly working? Our neighbors are watching us. Peter says we need to keep our conduct before them beautiful, attractive, appealing. Why? We are to live our lives like that with the aim, with the goal, the hope that our neighbors will observe what we do, they will see the beauty, they will be attracted to it, and that one day they will glorify God. That is our hope, that our neighbors would be drawn to the Lord. They would see us and see in us and through us the God whom we serve. This is exactly what Jesus says in our call to confession. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus is calling us to live beautiful lives. One of my former professors in his book on evangelism writes this about this call. Jesus teaches us that if we live in obedience to God's commands, loving him and loving our fellow men and women, then people will see the beauty of our lives, the acts of kindness, the daily life of integrity and faithfulness, and their response will be to glorify God. The attitudes of unbelievers toward God are changed by genuine righteousness in the lives of believers. Conversely, if we live in a way that dishonors God and the Christian truth, if we are hypocrites who say one thing and live another, then unbelievers will reject us and they will also reject the gospel. They will throw it out and trample it underfoot. This is our hope, that our neighbors would see our beautiful lives, our attractive lives, So that they would say this. I may not believe what they believe. I may not accept what they teach. But I see how he treats his wife. I see how she deals with her kids. I see him work hard at work. I see them in the neighborhood. And I like it. And maybe, just maybe, there's something about what they believe that is worth looking into because it has changed their lives. Friends, we are called to be resident aliens. Yes, distinct, because there is a war in our hearts, but residents who love and honor and are attractive for the glory of God. This is a high calling this is a high calling. What if we fail? What if we mess up? What if we give in to those passions? What if we live on attractive and ugly lives? What if we mess up? I think there's two things we need to remember. One, the most beautiful and the most strange thing about the gospel is that it invites us to confess our mistakes and receive forgiveness. So do that often. Do it with your spouse. Do it with your children. Do it with your coworkers. Do it with your neighbors. Confess your mistakes. Confess your sin. And ask them for forgiveness. That is strange in this world, but it is so beautiful. But then secondly, we need to remember we need to remember what Peter starts this passage off with. He calls us beloved. The beloved of the Lord. Those whom the Lord so dearly loves. We are the ones for whom Jesus came into this world. We are the ones for whom Jesus resisted temptation. We are the ones for whom Jesus lived an attractive and appealing life of beautiful works in our place. We are the ones for whom Jesus suffered and died on the cross so that when we confess our sin, we are forgiven. We are the people so dearly loved by God. So before he calls us to be resident aliens, he reminds us, we are loved. Jesus loves you. Let's pray.